Hello, Sean. Morning, Harry. Thank you for joining again for this month's edition of our intelligence run through. We're going to have a conversation today about something we've touched on a couple of times, but really focus in on it for the next 20 minutes, which is the amount of what some people still call non-traditional threats that we face. Non-traditional, we'll talk about what that means in a second. But my my thought is that actually a lot of these so-called non-traditional threats are actually now the new threats that we face, and they're increasing in their effect on what we do in national security and not 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 becoming less of a problem, becoming more of a problem. So I want to focus on this non-traditional threat for a few minutes today. Um, as the president of government national security for James, I think it's important that we do look at this kind of topic because it is a government-wide issue. So if I can get you, Sean, just to remind the audience a bit about yourself, and then we'll get started with the first question, defining what is a non-traditional threat. Sean, over to you. Okay, thanks, Harry. Uh, yeah, so Sean Corbett, uh, I'm currently the co-chair of the Strategic Advisory Group for Jane's, um, ex-Royal Air Force Intelligence Officer, um, been deployed most places in the world, uh, providing operational and strategic level, uh, intelligence to a number of organisations, um, including uh, allies and partners. Very good. Sean, we are going to talk about national, sorry, non-traditional threats. I get my uh, mouth working for myself this morning. Non-traditional threats. Um, how do we define what a non-traditional threat is? What do you think it means for you in the realm of national security? The reason this is so interesting is, is you know, there's a lot of buzzword bingo out there at the moment. And the reason that it's a good subject of this, actually, is that non-traditional threats have actually been around probably since mankind, to be honest. But we haven't focused on them. And defining them actually is quite complex. And when I was doing a little bit of research on the subject, there was no common understanding of what a non-traditional threat is. I think before I go further as well, there's, a, there's an issue with cause and effect. Non-traditional threats, you know, can lead to traditional threats and vice versa. So there's a whole interconnection and linkage, and we need to remember that and sort of step back. But you can, you can look at it from one of many perspectives. So non-traditional threat is something less than all-out war and warfare. Then you come on to things that some people call non-traditional threats, and I completely valid, I completely understand that, is things like cyber attacks, particularly non-attributable ones. Now, that's a whole subject for a different day, so we should probably park that. Terrorism is another one. You and I, probably, when we joined, from day one, certainly I was involved in counter-terrorist operations, and I have been ever since. Yeah. So is that traditional? Is it non-traditional? And, you know, you go back much further than our time. You look at the uh, Malayan campaigns where, you know, counterinsurgency was known then. There was a drop from Britain for it all sorts. So, you know, is that traditional or is it non-traditional? So, so it is very blurry. But, but I think for the sake of this discussion, and it is just for this discussion, I think if we focus on those threats that directly or indirectly impact global security, but not manifested by premedicated organised application military force for political gain. A lot of these threats are transnational, and that's important when you look at how to counter them. Okay, so if we are going to define non-traditional threats then, as you've uh, done for the purpose of this conversation, as those things that don't focus purely on the heavy metal warfare aspects of military intervention, and then the range of things that you talked about before, perhaps we could spend a bit more time just looking at some of those non-traditional threats individually then, some of those characteristics you described, but now looking at them specifically. So things like um, resource uh, scarcity or the resource frictions that can be caused between countries as expanding boundaries of some countries affect the resources of others, etc. You talked about um, cyber. Those included, but what are some of those things that we would now characterize as being the non-traditional threats we are facing? 
Yep, uh, we'll have a look at those. And again, there's so many interlinks there that that you know we'll we'll start weaving around and coming in and out some areas. But if you look at sort of the big one that everyone is talking about now, climate change, and you know the fact is climate change is happening, and it's probably happened throughout history. It's just we have a very myopic view of of history, but climate change is definitely happening. And with that comes an uneven distribution, should we say, of natural events. So, you know, one of the big things and, and one of my interests particularly is, is water insecurity. It's a very critical element of the state to provide enough water, potable water, for populations to exist. I mean, it's the fundamental requirement of life. And what we are seeing is that uneven distribution of water, you know, naturally, but also exacerbated by the human requirement and national requirement to to secure water i mean the great example i like to use is the grand ethiopian renaissance dam which is spanning the, the blue nile um been accelerate, accelerated by the ethiopians it's, it's going to be the biggest dam in, in fact it is the biggest dam in africa but of course when it's complete and even now they're filling it early that will have a direct impact downstream on particularly egypt and sudan and places but um but but egypt absolutely relies on the water from the nile for pretty much its entire life so you've got ethiopia saying well look you know we, we have water and food insecurity we need this for a power they've got a burgeoning population which is poor you know we we need to do this but the egyptians are saying well if you do this that will affect us so you know, that, that's where the cause and effect comes out. Now, they're supposed to be and, and still are negotiating, you know, a deal where there's a certain amount of flow. But the Ethiopians are definitely filling it up far quicker than they were going to with the concerns that's causing. Yeah. And if you look at that regionally, you know, the frictions are really there. Now, most people think that water insecurity is never going to result in all out, you know, uh, war between two nations. But if you stop someone's water supply, it could well do that. Then you've got places like the Mekong Valley again, Chinese damming upstream. Yeah. So water insecurity is a big thing. And then the reason it's all linked, of course, water security then leads to food insecurity, because if you don't have the water, you can't grow the crops. And we're seeing that, you know, it's not just about the water. I mean, I've been um, just because I've got an interest uh, looking at the locust plague that's going through northeast Africa. I mean, this thing is huge literally thousands and thousands of hectares of food in an area which has already got uh, food insecurity because because of the water. Uh, and there are other examples, it's not just locusts. So when you compound all that, that is when you lead, start leading to, to insecurity and the traditional threats. The desertification of northeastern Nigeria is, is caused by climate change. And it is no accident, there's no um, surprise really, that the areas where you've got most terrorism and extremism are those areas which are suffering the, that, that sort of element. Now, you know, two things tend, tend to happen is, is, you know, one, what I've just said is, uh, is sort of activity in the name of, you know, whatever particular extremism, you know, they're following. But actually, it is all about their own security. And of course, that, that will then develop. Another example is, uh, and, and it's, I know, you know, it's one I use quite often, there's the, the Arab Spring phenomena. Yeah. The causes were, you know, the social uh, inequality uh, and the lack of food and all the rest of it. But that was actually caused by a, a global drought, which in those areas where wheat was being particularly um, produced and the prices of wheat, which is there create, creates a staple diet of obviously bread um, for most of those countries was so great that people then couldn't live. And that's when the problem started. So it's all linked. So. The interesting thing about those uh, examples you've given is how much they are interlinked. You said it all the way through, you know, this could lead to that, that leads to the next. And often, as you say, you end up with this 
more, in quotes, traditional outcome for military and national security concerns. But it also seems to me from what you've said, given the interconnected nature of these phenomena, that you're going to need to have a much more pan-government response to these. This, this can't just be a military response, self-evidently, but nor can it just be an environmental agency's response, because there may well be security threats that would prevent the environmental agency doing their work. And you and I have both been involved in operations where we've been trying to, trying to support, for example, NGOs or international organizations operating in good faith, trying to do the right thing, but simply can't because of security issues. So it seems to me that another aspect of this non-traditional threat paradigm that we're talking about today is the need for pan-government multi-agency and it doesn't have to be just government agencies of course it can be as i've mentioned ngos international organizations and governments including the military uh, capability for support so perhaps we could step then from those types of traditional and non-traditional threats we're facing towards how do you start to resolve this because i think it's fair to say multi-agency within government and when you include external from government agencies is a very complicated thing to do. It's often not worked as well as it should. And in hindsight, people have pointed to all sorts of lessons they've learned from the process that they would not do differently. They would do differently, sorry, in the next time they did it, but somehow it never seems to get fixed. So let's turn from what the non-traditional threats are, which you've described, to what do we do about it? How do we address that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really complex issue. Yeah, and, and I think, Particularly now, we should be worried because the one of the impacts of the COVID crisis we haven't even mentioned is that people are looking after their own national interests, regardless of what organisations you are a member of, and and seeing organisations like the World Health Organisation, the UN, almost being ignored because it's all about you know the, the national requirement, and that's understandable. But when you're looking at these you know pan-national problems, you have to look at them from a almost at least a regional or a global perspective. And they say, I guess this, this is where we come in and James comes in, is that, you know, if you can get predictive intelligence that is going to tell you where the problems are going to be before they happen, and then the supply chain resilience, because what we're talking really about is an, in, you know, is an uneven distribution of resources. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that's fundamentally what the problem is. So how do you how do you sort that? And that is through the supply chains. I mean, it was really interesting, the, the, the eye-watering amount of trade that goes through the, the Suez Canal. Yeah. Now, that put oil prices up. In fact, they went down initially, which is interesting, but then they went, went up just on, just on one particular ship. Uh, and that's, so it's not exactly asking question, but it is, it is sort of uh, honing into the fact that you do need a, a networked approach to it. So by predicting that sort of thing uh, in a systematic way, gives us the opportunity, assuming there is some altruism, say, okay, what do we do about this? And we've been worrying that particular problem, you know, since, well, forever. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, you and I remember the big um, food aid programs from the 1980s. You know, what's happened with those? You're still seeing that food insecurity. So so it needs to it needs to address the, the underlying problems and sustainable solutions that have to be within that own within their own countries. But I go back to the understanding the problem, you know, as, as with everything, is the most important thing. So, and that requires asking the right question. And one thing that we don't necessarily do particularly well, certainly in, in the intelligence world, or criticised for not doing, is that predictive intelligence, what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. 
And that multilateralism, which you're alluding to there, um, I think it's fair to say has shrunk in its prevalence in the world. We've seen a lot more nationalist views coming to the fore, as you mentioned, the pandemic, you know, COVAX, a great, a great idea, multilateral approach to a significant global problem. And yet it's still struggling to get the vaccines that it needs to distribute across countries that can't afford to buy them for themselves. I think the, the key there that I want to focus on just for a second, though, Sean, um, as we round this out, is knowing how to ask the right questions is part of the solution. Knowing how to answer them is another part, very closely associated to asking the question. You've got to be able to answer them. And bringing together multiple different disciplines of information, multiple dis disciplines of expertise to create a common understanding of the problem is really what you're alluding to in terms of finding those answers. And that integration of intelligence and information is a phenomenally difficult thing to do when you have just, for example, just different lexicons being described, different languages being used, um, both in, in the literal sense of language, but also in terms of the way you describe things within a language. All of those things make it very difficult to synthesize a coherent answer that can be widely understood and then used as actionable, hopefully predictive intelligence to drive change. And then you get to the problem that you've I, you've also identified, which is having understood the problem, which is a massive, massive issue in itself. You've then got to actually have the political will and the capability to do something about it, to actually enact what you know needs to be done. I think one of the things we might well see from the non-traditional threat of pandemic health issues, which we've certainly all experienced in the last year or more, is governments being more prepared, the stitch in time principle being applied more frequently for things like health pandemics, the governments of the world that have managed to buy themselves the ventilating machines, the test and trace technologies, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things, I hope, will be pre-positioned to your point earlier so that you can start to deal with them. You mentioned climate issues being another one where you would need to pre-position disaster relief capabilities in areas where you know there are going to be hurricane threats or typhoon threats. These sorts of activities are multilateral, but knowing where to put them why you're putting them there requires you to go back to that middle of the three or four points I made earlier a second ago, which is answering the question and synthesizing all this information together. So one of the things I'd like to do in a future iteration of uh, this conversation, Sean, is actually look at how we bring together intelligence. How do you bring together multidiscipline groups? How do you take all that expertise they've got and synthesize it down to the question and answer that you need to ask and provide the answer to? The lack of the ability to do that, I think, is a significant impediment to finding the answers we need to act to know what to act upon. So let's have a conversation in the future, Sean, stemming out of this one around so-called complex non-traditional threat um, to then in the intelligence community. And I don't mean just military intelligence now. Let's talk about that intelligence in the wider pan-government sense, pan-societal sense, to understand how do you integrate that information and make it so that it's actionable from a common understanding and a commonly recognized picture. That would be a very good discussion to have actually, because you know um, there's lots of barriers to that. It's actually quite a simple problem to, to write down on paper, but yeah. actually addressing it for real. And one of those problems is cultural actually. You know, yeah. knowledge is power and uh, hang on a minute, this is my turf. But without that pan approach, which I know, you know, certainly the UK's government, um, if you look at the integrated review, is, is very much taking more seriously. But just going back to what you're saying, from an analytical perspective, you've got to take a, you know, you've got to zoom out a little bit. And of yeah. course, that needs multi-source multi, multi -source intelligence um, to try and come up with that answer. Yeah, there is um, 
there is a tendency isn't there, to try and find sort of monocausal links between things because it makes it relatively straightforward to ask the question how do i fix that cause it's that that's causing the problem when actually as you've said it's multi-causal it's very very complicated and interrelated but at the heart of that is the ability to bring together multiple sources of information and synthesize them into a commonly understood view of what's going on and what's causing the problems that you're encountering so let's um Let's put that on our agenda, Sean, for our next session, um, if not the next one, certainly the one that after that, to start looking at how you actually do the integration of intelligence, because without that integration of the intelligence, the information you've got, the expertise that's available to you, my view is that you end up with too simplistic an answer and therefore, at best, a very crude response to what's actually a very complicated and sophisticated problem to solve. Uh, and unintended consequences as well, of course, you know, by, you know, you might solve something over here and make it far worse over there. <laughs> I, I do remember with some uh, some dread the days of effects-based operations being the all, all singing, all dancing, and actually it's incredibly complicated to understand causal effects, let alone the thing you've got to do to save yourself from the second tier, third tier problems you've created by the first thing you've done. So Sean, thank you for that. Um, Non-traditional threats, are they actually the new traditional threats that we face? I think so. I think we are going to face a world that is increasingly clear to us that what we used to see as non-traditional is actually now the contemporary threat that is part of our everyday. But again, maybe one for another session, Sean, in the future. How do you deal with all of that whilst right in the middle of it, perhaps buried below the ambient noise level, is a very traditional threat that's now mustering uh, on your border? So that's something we'll need to talk about again in the future. But as ever, we've got more to talk about than time. So uh, let me thank you for the uh, talking about non-traditional. Are they the new traditional threats? And let's pick it up from there next time. Sean, thank you. Great, my pleasure.